Hi everyone, I'm Carla Bello from the Center for Automotive Research, and today we have three researchers joining the podcast, Brett Smith, Bernard Sweeke, and Kristen Gicek. And we're going to be talking about mainly two things, our fabulous MBS that just wrapped up last week, going over some of the main things that we learned, big discussion points, and then we're also going to spend some time talking about uh, the, the executive order signed last week by President Biden, what that means for the automotive and what we need to do here in the United States to prepare for this transition. Today on the CAR podcast, we're going to talk about some of the key topics from last week's MBS, Management Briefing Seminars, as well as talk about President Biden's um, infrastructure um, package and, and also his announcement about the um, 50% EVs by 2030. So just as a reminder, CAR Management Briefing Seminars is held every year, first week of August. It's been varying in the number of days over the years. Um, this past week, we were able to hold the event as a hybrid with over 500 people being in attendance um, at the resort, at Grand Traverse Resort. And last year, as you know, we had to be completely virtual. This year, we had about 250 people joining us virtually. So almost the same attendance as, uh, as normal. And uh, we had great media presence. The whole purpose of MBS is to really bring together the industry, which today includes not only the automotive community, but the mobility community, many municipalities, um, IT companies, so that we can talk about all of the things that are happening in the automotive industry, including Industry 4.0, EVs, autonomy, data monetization. Um, we also talked about what is, our, what is our forecast for the future, purchasing and supply chain, lightweighting, all of the hot topics of the industry today. And today the CAR team is going to kind of give you a synopsis of all those key topics that were discussed last week. So let's start with Kristen. Kristen, you uh, ran several panels last week. Which one um, you know, would you like to talk about today? I think it's good to talk about the forecast panel. Um, that's how we wrapped up the sessions, uh, the last session before John McElroy. Um, and always a good way to end this conference is looking forward. Um, we had three forecast um, organizations on our panel. Uh, we had um, Jeff Schuster from LMC. We had Stephanie Brinley from IHS Market and Colin Langen from Wells Fargo. And you know, we had just gotten the news about the president's executive order. So we spent a lot of time talking about, can the companies get there? Can the market get there uh, on the 50% target for battery electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles? The forecasts range from, for battery electric from 16% from Wells Fargo to 40%. So this is before they had gotten the news, but had some inkling that this administration would be more positive toward BEV policy. Um, and that was quite a wide range. So we had a lot of discussion around that topic. Um, the other topic we talked about was supply chain disruptions. And if it weren't 
um, if it weren't semiconductors in the headlines, it would be something else. And we, we dug into that a bit, um, that there's you know, disruptions in global trade, um, which was my other panel, um, and you know, steel and steel prices and labor, quite frankly, being another limiting factor to uh, the, the resurgence of the auto industry's production. Yeah, so what I found kind of interesting and I guess a little bit disappointed from my view is the way you just described it is a little bit different than what came out in the headline. You know, the headline was, you know, MBS panel says you can't reach that 50%, which isn't really what we said, right? It's not what we said, no. And I think, you know, I, I probed a bit on that and I said, so what is it going to take to get to 50%? And the, the common answer is um, you guys talked about in a different panel was the consumer is the consumer going to be there? And you know, I often talk about the three parities that we need cost parity, utility parity, and convenience parity. Cost parity is getting there with the uh, um, consumer incentives that are on the horizon. Utility parity is there with the models being electrified from pickup trucks to small cars and everything in between. And then convenience parity is a, is a real issue. And there, I think, you know, Brett started one of his panels with could the person who's hogging the charger out front please um, move off? There's a line of people waiting. Um, we did have a lot of electric vehicles up at the conference and very limited charging in Northern Michigan. So convenience parity is going to have to be addressed in the infrastructure bill as some of that, uh, but that's those were the limiting factors from our forecast panel is if the consumer's there and if the infrastructure is there, then we can see getting to that 50%. Yeah, you know, I keep, um you know, looking for more charging stations. And interestingly enough, you see them in some very strange places. I was in a small town, um, it, it's a holiday town up here in Northern Michigan, Elk Rapids, and they had them at the local grocery store. But, you know, they didn't have them out where people could see them. You could only see them if you drove down this, this kind of back road. So you mentioned Brett's panel. So I'm gonna switch this over to Brett to talk you know, what, what did we learn about consumer acceptance? Let's stick with electrification for now and then move into autonomy. But um, what, what were the main comments? You know, is Kristen's three points correct? Is there more that we have to think about? Yeah, so Carla, yeah, thanks. Um, that is the next big step, I think, is understanding, getting the consumers who often don't really care, let alone know about these technologies, to understand and be comfortable with them. And for, for through the whole week, I heard a lot of discussion about, we have to educate the consumers. And educating the consumers is a really challenging thing because a lot of them don't wanna be educated. They don't feel as though they need to. So as an industry, we have all of the stakeholders in the industry, whether it be the car companies, the administration, research organizations such as CAR. We have this new challenge that, that we have to get out there and try to figure out how to effectively communicate these changes. Kristen talked about the, the three levels of parity there um, to get these vehicles, electric vehicles accepted or even people interested in them. They're big steps. There's this messaging. And it was interesting uh, on the consumer uh, adoption panel we did, how every one of the speakers came back to educating the consumers. And that's not easy. And I think that for, for all of us becomes a really 
fascinating and maybe fun challenge. But to get to 50%, we're going to have to do it quickly. And, and you know, I, I think about, you know, educating the consumer and you go back to when we switched from, from horses to cars. There was no education, right? People just became more convinced over X amount of time that, yeah, getting around by a car is easier. Yes, there were people who, you know, were injured at first with the cranks, et cetera. But I mean, it just kind of happened synergistically. But you see some of these other things, you know, that are happening culturally, at least in the U.S. You look at, let's just take a look at recycling, for example. I mean, still, the vast majority of Americans don't recycle. And we've been talking about don't pollute, don't litter, the problems with global warming and what's happening with, you know, our, our landfills. We've been talking about this for ages. And, you know, still people, a lot of people aren't willing to pay an extra $10, let's say, to whatever the upcharge is for recycling. So the how to do this training and should it be, should we think about more carrot and stick um, philosophies? This, this President Biden executive order of 50%, that is kind of the first time that we've ever seen somebody commit to something. We've not committed that for recycling. We've not committed it for GHG. I mean, these hard targets and then to create the policies around it is gonna be an interesting challenge. I think considering the mindset of an American, um, I don't know if anybody has any thought about that, but you know, Americans are all over the map. Look at us with the pandemic. I mean, how, what training should we do? Did, did anybody have a clue about that? So, so Carla, I'd, I'd take it back to the horse and carriage versus car thing. Pretty quickly, it became apparent that the car was a better option. I think when we talk about electric vehicles or automated vehicles, when it becomes a better option and people say, wow, that's a better choice, it's going to happen quickly. And there is a lot of great attributes for electric vehicles. I think automated vehicles are still kind of out there in the future. Um, but there's a lot of really impressive attributes. But there's also some drawbacks. And as Kristen talked about charging, you talked about charging. Um, those, as long as those are there, the education is helpful, but you've got to get the product so it is a better choice for everybody. And that, I think, is, is certainly on the car companies to, to do that. It's also on the government and others to provide that infrastructure so you know that this better product is better supported. And over time, that is happening. You can look at California and see the success they've had. It's cost a lot of money, but they've had some great success in, in raising the um, acceptance and interest in electric vehicles there. That kind of commitment um, by the federal government, by the local governments, by the car companies, is part of that education, showing the product is real, showing the product is real good. I'd add, a, I'd add just one quick note. Um, at the end of our conference, we had uh, the session run by John McElroy, and he really drove home the point uh, that when he talks to an automotive uh, skeptic of electric vehicles, the point is drive one. Uh, and, you know, now I think that maybe uh, with the rapid expansion of electric vehicle sales in the marketplace, more people will have that chance to to either be a passenger in their neighbor's or family member's EV, uh, take one for a spin around the block, 
um, you know, but giving them that better alternative, the the better horse and carriage option. Uh, I think that the growing exposure is maybe our best friend in getting that uh, consumer sentiment to shift. Does social media play a role in that? What do you think? I mean, a lot of people today before they buy anything, I know I was looking for a food processor um, this past week. Um, I'm tired of using this terrible thing that I've been sort of using. Um, and so I went online and, you know, looked at all the reviews, what was good, what wasn't. I mean, is this also going to help propel it? Is this a way of training? What do you think? Absolutely. Word of mouth and, and the ability, the access to the information is, is really important and helpful. But Carla, you, you said earlier, this is America. It's got a lot of diverse opinions. Sometimes if you go online, you see negative things about electric vehicles by the people that um, you may be listening to on other topics. And so I think there's these, depending on which group you're in, Bernard's point about drive one, you'll like it. Um, depending on which group you're in, that may or may not be the case. And for, for the car companies, that's a little disconcerting. They've got to get not just the people who like electric vehicles, but those that may not like them right now. Electric vehicles have been for a long time, a political football kind of getting punted back and forth. Um, to get to 50%, well, I guess you could get there with one party, but you're probably going to need um, a lot more folks to buy into the idea that they are a better carriage, better horse and carriage. One thing that fascinates me is the role of the dealer, uh, because as these vehicles become more complex, uh, there's a much smaller chance that if you just traditionally go one, uh, go to the dealership and buy one and drive it off the lot, uh, that you know how to use you know, even half of the features that the vehicle has. And the distribution of educating the consumer between the automaker and the dealer, how that falls in itself is intriguing. And it's to me made even more of a compelling question by the fact that some of the pure electric startups uh, would prefer not to use dealers at all and be doing direct to consumer sales. And what happens in that environment? And what does the, the selling automaker have to do differently? You know, because right now we have consumers who switch off the stop-start function on their vehicle. They switch off a lot of the adaptive driver systems as well. Um, you know, and I think at least some of that is because of a lack of understanding or knowing which situations those systems are uh, really helpful in. Uh, so that in a future of direct sales, um, you know, to a higher degree than today uh, and more complex vehicles uh, for me is a fascinating subject that the industry is really going to have to undertake. And I suppose, Brett, in your session, there was some discussion about ADAS and, and you know, people turning them off and the acceptance of that. And that will maybe lead, maybe lead to better acceptance of autonomy. Um, was it still the same? We need to train better. And who's going to, are the dealers supposed to do this? Because the dealers, by the time you go through all that rigmarole, you know, to buy a car, you just want to get out. You, know, you don't want to sit there and go through class for four hours. Or is there a better way to train? Should we have more ability for, you know, ask Alexa or whoever when you're in your car, ask Siri, I, I need to know how to do this right away. And there's a database in her brain that his or her brain that just tells you how to manage it. You know, do we need to think about this in more simplistic terms? I don't know. Yeah, so 
so, so we weren't, because of time, we weren't able to really dig deep into this. And we did get a little bit stuck on this idea that, yes, we all agree that it's going to be consumer education. I think that next challenge, that next discussion, that takeaway is, okay, what are the effective ways? You talk of a voice assistant, you talk about some, some way of doing that. That works really well. That works super for those that are techies that like it or those that are used to it. Those that aren't used to it, it won't work so well. How do you get the communication to those folks? And the dealer is a touch point, but as you point out, I don't want to spend four hours learning this. And by the way, as soon as I drive off the lot, I'm probably going to forget 90% of what that well-trained dealer told me to do. So I think there's this constant way or challenge of constantly reminding people what the technology is, how to use it, and then hopefully having them shape their use patterns to make it even more effective. But it's not easy and it's not happening quickly. And that I think for the industry, um, the, the, the researchers on the panel point out, that became becomes a big challenge. One that is going to damage or going to slow the acceptance of some of these technologies. And then Carl, even going further, a lot of them don't even understand what the technologies are and what they have on their car. You know, Kristen loves to talk about um, getting a call for someone that said, let's, let's um, tell me about, tell me how many different automated vehicles there are on the road. Well, Kristen, how many are there? Zero. There's none. Zero, right? So, so to that point, there are zero people don't know, commercially, people don't know what they don't know is on their car. And that becomes a real challenge. Yeah, and especially those people that can afford the new car with all the bells and whistles today are not people who are typically tech savvy with the latest, as you were just talking about. You know, they, I gave a presentation to a group of GM retirees and was talking about ADAS systems. And for some of them, it's the first time they realize these things that were on their car that were annoying them. And so many of them came up later and said, I'm so glad you explained what these things are. But I, I still didn't get the impression they were going to turn them back on because they were still annoying. Carla, I shared with you an email I received from the AARP about training for um, vehicle technologies. And I, you know that kind of an organization actually plays a very important role. Our average age of a consumer of a new vehicle is AARP membership. So I think an organization, a trusted organization and some uh, you know, more accessible ways of accessing that training is, is part of it. I fully know, by the way, that um, I'm only using a fraction of the features provided on my cell phone or on my tablet computer. Uh, and as the vehicle becomes more of a technology piece, you know, as it becomes automated and electrified, if the consumer mindset shifts accordingly, where they're fine with the fact, you know, that I just use the, the functions that I really need to, uh, and are okay leaving a whole lot untapped, uh, then that's going to make this challenge even harder. So Bernard, while, while you're talking, I do want to talk a little bit about supply chain and how that relates to um, the new uh, presidential order that was signed. I also want to hear a little bit about on your, your views. You had some people on that panel who, according to the latest supplier survey um, with different companies, were really at the low end um, and, and how they feel like the supplier relationship may be changing and morphing. But before I go to that, I just have to add a little comment. You know, 
Brett, you were, you mentioned in the beginning of one of your panels that, you know, people move your, move your car from the charging station and the resort themselves also during one of the breaks announced, please move your car if you're finished charging. In the back of my mind, I keep thinking there's a business here for somebody to manage these charging stations, just like the old full service gas stations. Maybe I'm crazy, but I haven't heard of any of those yet. So but I think we're going to have to do it either that or you're going to have to make the price. If you keep your car there and take up that space, you're going to have to start charging an astronomical amount of money to make people move their car. But anyway, you know, well, I'll, it's certainly, I'll leave that. Go ahead. That's certainly going to be an issue in the commercial applications. I mean, we see, you know, the commercial EV push is huge, but there's and it's great because they all come back and park in the same yard every night but they're not going to have one charger per vehicle that's going to be somebody's job um, to move the charging around at night to make sure everything's all ready to go in the morning on the morning shift yeah so maybe maybe you know there's a business opportunity for a startup if, if you're out there listening today um, let's go back to supply chain purchasing um, relationships oems to suppliers and having visibility all through the tiers what, what did you hear from the folks in your panel, Bernard? Yeah, Carla, it's clear uh, that right now the industry is operating in one of those watershed moments. And uh, the example that we often come back to uh, is the 2011 tsunami in Japan. Uh, we'd also had, you know, floods in Thailand and, you know, other momentous events like, you know, select uh, fire at a critical producer in a given location. Uh, but what's interesting, all of those other examples were isolated incidents that had an effect for some time, but they were solved. Uh, where in this case, between the pandemic, uh, now going on about a year and a half, uh, and an extended shortage of different commodities, um, you know, this is much more than getting over an event. This is now a status quo in which the industry is functioning. Uh, and we're handling all of this at the same time for this you know, very extended duration of time that it's almost the new normal. Uh, and at the same time, we're doing what we've been talking about throughout the rest of this podcast, which is we're drastically changing the product. So we're electrifying it. We are automating it, uh, which means that we're also working with new suppliers who may not typically work in automotive. And we're also asking our existing supply base to do different things. Uh, and so all of this tremendous complexity has kind of come upon the industry at the same time. And you really have to be very good at putting out fires where they come up at the same time that there's this long-term perspective on we still need to not just manage this, but transform as we do it. Uh, and so the priorities that, that we really emphasized, first and foremost, transparency. Um, you know, the idea of there's so much that we don't know, but what we do know is critical in helping you prepare the things that you can, and it does no one any good if that information is in parts of the supply chain but not in others. So the speed of communication and the transparency that you share what you know helps tremendously in that regard, and frankly, sometimes more and more. Uh, that means transparency between suppliers who may be competitors uh, or may be in different parts of the vehicle value chain, but they know that somehow that is interconnected and the whole uh, system works better if they share where otherwise in the past they would not have. Well, and this is something the Biden administration is asking the industry for as well as they're putting together policies to support 
uh, domestic production of, of semiconductors and batteries and all of this. They're asking the associations and the leaders in Washington, we need greater transparency into your supply chains. And it just doesn't exist at that level that they're looking for right now. So the interesting thing to me, and, and this is a, a question for everybody, we can chat about this a little bit. I mean, look at how things have happened in the past. You have a, a new product you're developing at X point in time, you send it out for sourcing, you beat everybody up who tries to source the part and you source it to the lowest price and you leave all the tiers up to that person you source it to. And then, you know, you continue year over year to beat them up to reduce the price, right? This is how we do business in the automotive industry. It doesn't lead to cooperation. It doesn't lead to transparency. It leads to a lot of hidden, I, I guess in the bids, you know, I, I know from experience, the suppliers often, you know, put X amount of fat in the bid because they knew year over year, they had to reduce the price and they, you know, a lot of times there weren't technical ways to do that. It was only commercial. So thinking about what we're telling or expecting now in this new world versus how it's been done for years and years and years, this is a totally new way for purchasing and supply chain to operate, right? And are we even training people through academia, through supply chain management to think this way? Yeah, and Carla, I'd start with this. Um... As challenging as that environment that you described uh, is to, to operate in, you know, especially from the point of view uh, of a supplier, we're now adding to that the fact that you calculated a lot of that math and a lot of your return on investment on a given production volume. And now because of the pandemic and because of these resource shortages, you know, not only do you have all these disruptions, but you are not likely to get that production volume on key products that you are supplying. You know, and so that relationship now with the automaker of, you know, what do we do about this? How do we make you whole to the degree possible, given that this is all driven by unforeseen circumstances? You know, I think that is going to turn into a critical issue as we source, you know, the next vehicle, as we do this the next time around. Are we gonna build in a little bit more of these safeguards for what do we do when those volumes just are impossible to realize. So, so then the risk management side of, of, of how we do business needs to really be considered, right? So that we're future-proofing properly. And, um, you know, when we think about that, risk management just became kind of a buzzword in the mid-2000s, maybe around 2007. That's when everybody started talking about risk management. So uh, this whole way of thinking needs to change. Carla, we have gone through this, as Bernard pointed out, over and over with um, supply relationships and such for decades. And the pendulum tends to swing back and forth from a partnership to a cost competitive, to a partnership, to a cost competitive. And, and we as an industry, and I say we as an industry, it's a very broad group of companies have different strategies, have different um, priorities. But yeah, there's historically been attempts to try to be more risk averse, to be more um, cooperative, coopetition kind of thing. But we often end up back here when, when things get tough, when things get challenging, where whether it be the vehicle manufacturer to the first tiers, the first tiers to the lower tiers, 
drive it based on short-term profit, short-term cost. Um, it's something we've, we've watched, all of us from different angles in this group have watched um, often through the years. And we keep saying, well, this is the time where we've learned that, that, co or that co or cooperation or being partners and, and concerned about that risk, that long-term risk is going to take effect. And then we see it swing back and forth and back and forth. And this, you know, Bernard described those different situations in the last 10 or 15 years where we heard every company, manufacturer or supplier say, we learned from this. We've changed the way we do things. I'm saying, but we're back kind of where we started uh, on that. And I think that's um, something we as an industry need to keep tr getting better at. So, so then we have a bunch of new players in the industry today, the Fiskers, the um, well, we, we shouldn't call Tesla new anymore, but in, in totality, they're new. And so what does this changing landscape look like and, and how are they going to disrupt the entire business? What, what, what else is changing in the whole experience for the customer, for the whole product development? I mean, I, I keep saying product development is going to get shorter and shorter and shorter. The consumer isn't going to allow us to have these long life cycles a lot more over the air updates. We see a lot of retailers saying now they're gonna go straight to the customer and skip the dealer. Um, let's chat about that for a moment and what that means for the, for the um, industry itself. Well, and the pandemic seems to have accelerated some of those trends too, the direct to consumer and hands-free delivery and um, doing service uh, remotely and without contact is, is a pandemic, uh, after effect that may stick around for with us for a while, uh, but everything is changing. The product's changing, the process is changing, the players are changing, the jobs are changing, the footprint is changing, everything. Yeah, Kristen, that, that point about the pandemic being kind of that starting point or that, that um, moment of change is so interesting, I think. As we went into this, we knew there was a lot of change coming on, but it seemed like it would take a while. In the midst of the pandemic, and we, we hope it's past the midst, um, we saw big companies making commitments to electric vehicles in ways that you never would have imagined during a pandemic. And those were driven in part because of the technology changing, but Carla, to your point, in, in part also because there are some fabulous startups with some really interesting ideas that, that make making a car different now and those are going to change the industry in some ways in many ways we don't really understand yet and i think that's for an organization like the center for automotive research that's a wonderful thing to be watching for the car companies it's got to be challenging as heck and for the suppliers it's got to be scary as heck yeah absolutely brett there are billions of dollars moving on a chessboard right now uh, and, you know, in a way, we're playing a, a chess game with uncertain rules a little bit. Um, you know, in traditional chess, you know the outcome. Uh, in this chess, you know, we don't know if you build it, will they come? Um, you know, how much, you know, is there a ceiling to the rate of electrification that the market will readily accept? Um, you know, it's one of those questions that's really difficult to know until you get there. You know, and I find asking consumers is actually not that good of a guide because if they've never driven one of these vehicles if they don't know what the capabilities are or what the ownership experience is 
it's very, very difficult to get to sort of a prediction of what those numbers will be. And back to our old example, right, the, the famous uh, Henry Ford quote, where he said if he'd asked consumers what they want, you know, they would have said, I think, a better a horse and buggy, right? The, the idea of this disruptive product that uh, threw all that to the side just would not have been in their universe to tell you about. And I feel we're in a very similar moment uh, right now. And um, I don't know that you'll know until you get there. And I would say that's what's exciting about companies like Arrival or Brightdrop or some of these other startups is that we don't know what's going to work and we don't know what it is that, that's going to actually be the end point or the midpoint at least. But there are so many things happening in this industry that are just really exciting to watch. And as a consumer, they, they may not understand, they may not know about them, but in two to five years, they're going to experience this stuff and it's going to be really intriguing to see how they react. So something really interesting happened over the weekend that I'm not so sure I've seen before. It was announced maybe two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, that Magna was buying Vianeer. And now just before the weekend, I, I want to say just towards the end of MBS, you know, suddenly there's there's a higher bidder for Vianeer. And that deal is open again, I guess, because I hear Vianeer is talking um, with the second bidder. Um, we're seeing a lot of M&A activity because, you know, all the core competencies required, you, you just can't home grow that. And it takes too long to home grow it. So you've got to be merging with other players that can help you in those areas where, where you need the core competencies. I suppose we'll see more and more of this. Do you think we'll see more and more of this outbidding each other? And, you know, as we vie for this, for this talent, it's a talent war um, as we vie for that. And, you know, then I keep going back to being a little bit of devil's advocate. How is this going to help us, you know, collaborate for things we need to collaborate on? Well, I think absolutely we're going to see more of this as you know companies are making these bets. And you know we came out of this uh, quick recession. Um, many suppliers are well positioned financially and loaded for bear. You know they're looking for those strategic acquisitions that will propel them into this uh, new environment and new landscape. And you know, the volumes are changing, you know, as we go to electric vehicles, you might have, there, there's push for more common parts, more common platforms. And, you know, not everybody can supply a million units of production a year. But if, you know, the bets on common platforms and commonality and parts come true, that's what it's going to take to play in this game. So I think you're going to see a lot more consolidation and these, um, you know, it's interesting because not all of the companies that are acquisition targets are making any money yet, uh, but they're trying to um, to bring them into the fold to expand the product offerings. And yeah, this is this is not going to stop. As a supplier right now, I think, you know, your concern uh, is you don't want to be disrupted out of relevance, right? Um, not necessarily disrupted out of existence. Uh, but you don't want to be relegated to a commodity provider status. That takes you out of the, the leading high-margin part of the industry. Uh, and you can develop the necessary technologies in-house, but through this uh, M&A activity, I think you accomplish two things. You know, one, 
Uh, you save a lot of time and investment uh, by purchasing something that's just a little bit more proven uh, and something that's you know already in existence. Uh, and then I think you don't just get what you purchased. Uh, by making that purchase, you also prevent that entity from going to your competitor. You know, now they no longer will have that knowledge or, the, or that technology. Um, you, you also have a little bit of an insurance play in those acquisitions. So I want to end this podcast talking about um, impact to jobs and some of the things that we've seen happening post-COVID. Um, I had the great pleasure to interview Governor Whitmer on stage, and I asked her about COVID and, and workplace, and specifically a lot of the smaller um, smaller mid-sized manufacturing operations are really having a hard time hiring folks now, having any longevity. There are places that are, you know, many doing signing bonuses. Heck, we even see fast food now doing signing bonuses. And, you know, uh, hourly pay keeps rising. What are some of these things? And these are the questions that keep coming in the back of my mind. What should we be thinking about differently to be able to get and retain people to work. Um, and then these companies that are struggling today are the same ones perhaps that need to change their business model in the era of electrification. So not only are they having trouble keeping people on their, on their plant floor, but they're also being asked to put money into play to be able to perhaps change whatever product is they're making today and morph to something new. You know, for me, that seems a huge risk to, to our manufacturing base. And, um, you know, I, I'm not sure if we have data on how many companies are in jeopardy, just looking in here at the Midwest or in Michigan. And then, you know, what do we need to do differently to, to get people employed um, and, and to be able to, to retain them? What, what are some of the non-traditional out-of-the-box things? I mean, we always think about, we need to give them a bonus. We need to give them higher salary, we need to perhaps put daycare, we need to give them a flexible schedule. These things don't work anymore. Well, pay is a huge part of this. Um, and, you know, there's been this movement called Fight for 15 for a long time. And there was an article in the Washington Post over the weekend that $15 an hour is now the norm um, and not the exception for many, many jobs. It's a really big shift in the labor market that people are reserving their labor and have a higher reservation wage than they had before. So that filters through our system though, as we were talking earlier to um, companies that are uh, wanting price uh, reductions year after year in a, in a supplier contract, you just cannot do that and continue to pay your workers more and more wages. Um, you know, the, the labor market is really strange right now. We have very high unemployment and nobody can find people to work in manufacturing. And, you know, there's, I attended a webinar a week or so ago, which has a common theme that I've been saying is you've got to look where no one else is looking and you have to offer something that no one else is offering. You have to really have a unique employment brand really in, in the market in order to draw labor to you. Um, and look where no one else is looking. When, you know, often means looking in um, places like, you know, uh, more people who are uh, formerly incarcerated, more people who came out of the military, more people um, who may have been stay-at-home parents, uh, you know, luring them into employment and back into the labor force is, it's a really 
a high hurdle to, to clear. So I think, you know, it's going to be many, many years before we get labor force participation back up to what it was before the pandemic. And it was already um, fairly low. Mm -hmm. We're also hearing, I, uh, sorry, Carla. I was just gonna add one sentence there and say, we're also hearing that, you know, this marijuana testing should maybe go out the window too. Go ahead, Bernard. Absolutely. Well, I think absolutely. We had an employer who came to us maybe 10 years ago that said that they were having a hard time hiring, but they were screening for um, tobacco use because their healthcare premiums were so high when they had uh, tobacco users on their healthcare. We're like, you can't do that. You're not going to find anybody. And even back then, we talked about, you know, there are um, you know, drug screens that may not be as relevant to safety in the workplace. Absolutely, manufacturing is an environment that requires safe operation and safe operators. But what people are drinking on the weekend doesn't affect their performance on Monday morning. Yeah, so, sure. no, we're also hearing uh, very compelling statements from the members of CARS Automotive Communities Partnership, where uh, workforce availability is a critical component of deciding which investments land where. Um, and we're also hearing things like, for example, for those facilities or for those companies that have facilities in multiple location, uh, the key determinant of, you know, I need an expansion of capacity somewhere, uh, where you make that decision to expand is usually going to be based on that's where I believe I've got the best chances of attracting workers. Uh, so there's a very, very direct economic impact to those communities, to the tax base as well, of having that available workforce. So I really think uh, the CAR team is going to have to have a part two because there are so many different topics from MBS we haven't even begun to tackle. And what we all learned, I, again, I learned a tremendous amount just sitting in in the sessions. And really, that's our purpose of, of doing MBS is to put out that, that thought-provoking content and then allow time for people to chat about it. So um, if you weren't able to join our MBS, you can still register virtually and see the, see the sessions virtually after the fact. Um, so I'd encourage you to do that. And of course, those of you who do it, did attend, please give us your feedback so that we continue, can continue to make this event fabulous. So thank you to Kristen, Brett, and Bernard. Great conversation about some of the you know, EVs and, and presidential orders and supply chain and risk. And uh, we'll talk again in a couple weeks. <laughs>